Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A. Before this week's program, I want to take just a minute to tell you about a timely episode of our Presidential Recordings podcast on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You'll hear actual phone calls between President John F. Kennedy and his advisors, press conferences, and an interview with presidential historian Barbara Perry of the University of Virginia Miller Center. You can find this bonus episode of Presidential Recordings wherever you listen to podcasts. In this episode, you'll meet civil rights legal scholar Margaret Burnham. In 2007, she launched Northeastern University's Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project to document the largely unknown black victims of racial violence in the South in the 1930s through the 1950s. In her new book, By Hands Now Known, Professor Burnham describes the legal system's inherent support of Jim Crow violence, and you'll hear stories of the more than 1,000 now-documented murders in which the perpetrators were never brought to justice. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Legal scholar and author Margaret Burnham, your new book is called By Hands Now Known. This book really is the public tip of an iceberg of a project you initiated back in 2007. Will you tell me about that project? Yes, in 2007, along with uh, many of my students and colleagues at Northeastern University School of Law, we began looking at uh, homicides from the Jim Crow era. We first started looking at an earlier period, uh, excuse me, a later period. We first started looking at the 1960s, uh, but we then realized that most of those cases uh, were fairly well known uh, or easily discoverable. But we found that there was this black hole uh, for cases of an earlier period, 1930s and 1940s. So we began to concentrate on that era, uh, looking to see what patterns we could discern, uh, but most importantly, looking to figure out how we could help the families, uh, the survivors uh, of this violence, who many of whom uh, were and are uh, still alive. So the sons and daughters of those who had uh, been killed during this period, uh, we were working with them to reconstruct uh, what had actually occurred uh, and to give them uh, some sense of or some knowledge uh, about what had happened to their loved ones. You bookended the years 1933 and 1954 for your research. Why, Why are those the appropriate years? So we start in 1930 and we go to 1954. As I, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, you know, the period late uh, uh, from 1954, Brown and Board forward, uh, we really have the civil rights movement is in its, you know, in its bloom. Uh, and we have a far better sense of what's going on uh, in the South. Uh, we started in 1930 because there were two other scholars uh, who had worked from the Reconstruction period through 1930 to document pretty much the same thing. Uh, their uh, archive uh, focuses on lynching from the period 19, uh, late, late 19th century through 1930. So we picked up in 1930 uh, to bookend their project uh, and only carried through to 1954. Uh, Obviously, there's much more work to be done, uh, but, you know, as a scholar, one has to bracket 
Uh, one has to be, have a, a beginning and an end, as it were, and that's what it was for us. All of your work so far is collected in an online archive that's accessible to the public. What will you find there? Well, first of all, the archive is uh, crrjarchive.org, and I'm urging everyone to go and look for themselves. Uh, we have in the archive a thousand cases of Jim Crow era uh, killings. Uh, these are from the uh, Confederate states, the 11 states of the former Confederacy. Uh, and obviously, uh, we've you know, done as, as much as we can uh, to collect the records, the DOJ records, the FBI records, the local government records, the coroner's reports, the death certificates, and the family memories, all in one place. Um, so for each, some of these cases are obviously more built out than others, uh, but for every case, uh, you can uh, plug in a name and find out uh, what happened, uh, or find out uh, what records are available uh, on this particular case. So we also have collected newspaper articles. Some are accurate, some are not so accurate. Uh, but the archive will give you a full sense of what the violence looked like. Uh, and, and not only what the violence looked like, but also what the resistance looked like. So the, 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 the archive also just focuses on how uh, communities, African-Americans and others in those communities, uh, came together uh, to, to, uh, to fight back and, um, and, and, to, and to survive survive these events. It's been a lot of years. Are any of the cases you uncovered still prosecutable? No, I don't think so. These are, um, these, in these cases, the perpetrators are uh, mostly dead. There may be one or two where uh, very, very old, uh, mostly men here, we're talking about um, the, the lethality of men, uh, where these men are still alive. But for the most part, uh, these cases uh, have been unearthed uh, for what they tell us about the about the period, uh, and also uh, to um, uh, to to uh, help the family members uh, understand uh, their own uh, their own histories. So, what, in the largest sense, is the story that your work has uncovered? Uh, we have been able to show uh, that the lynching cases, uh, dramatic and uh, and, and brutal uh, though they are, <clears throat> and also uniquely American phenomenon uh, that it is, uh, really doesn't fully describe um, the, uh, the everyday routine uh, violence that African-Americans faced in the, in the Jim Crow South. And we're not arguing that th this was exclusively a Southern uh, phenomenon, but we are focusing on the South because that's where the violence was concentrated. And also that's where uh, folks were disenfranchised. So they had no real ability uh, to affect their political uh, realities, their political and, and juridical realities, because they had no jurors, they had no judges, they had no sheriff, they had no police officers. Um, so they were exposed, completely exposed, uh, not only to the to the violence at the hands of law enforcement and also at the hands of bus drivers uh, and others in positions of authority who felt their role was to enforce Jim Crow norms. Uh, and because um, they couldn't uh, couldn't protect themselves uh, from this violence. Uh, obviously, as I say, what arises is a very uh, robust uh, 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 liberatory uh, resistance movement 
that is the movement that carries us into the more well-known civil rights uh, movements of the 1950s and 1960s. In the introduction, you acknowledge that for young people today, this seems like ancient history, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Why do you think it's important to hear these stories? Well, it, it uh, you know, the stories are uh, critically uh, important because they uh, are the precursor to what occurs later on. So you really can't understand uh, what many have called the new Jim Crow, the systemic, systemic and structural features uh, of our, uh, our uh, justice system um, that have left so many African-Americans um, exposed to you know, uh, widespread injustice. You can't understand um, that phenomenon described so well by uh, Michelle Alexander in her book, unless you really uh, get a sense of what the old Jim Crow was. And so what we try, and you also can't understand, we all owe a debt uh, to uh, the movements that have come before us. So those who are engaged in movements for a wider justice today, Black Lives Matter folks, folks who are working around disability issues, um, the feminist movements, all of these movements are indebted to the work done uh, by uh, earlier uh, earlier organizers uh, and earlier uh, struggles for 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 justice and for a wider democracy in our country. So, so we that that's the story that we wanted to. We also want we tell the story of the violence, but as I say, it's also the resistance. So, if the story of this is that that violence was necessary to sustain Jim Crow, and especially across the southern states, and there was no recourse at the local level or state level for many of the citizens subjected to this violence, then what about the federal government? In the 30s, 40s, up to the 50s, that is the predominantly FDR era leading into Harry Truman era. Where was the federal government in this? Um, The federal government could have but did not uh, provide a backstop for the violence. the, the, the tools were, I argue that the tools were, they were imperfect, but they were there. Um, so coming out of the Reconstruction period, a whole set of laws were adopted, including laws uh, intended to address uh, uh, the racial violence uh, that was then being perpetrated uh, in response to the, the, um, the end of slavery. Uh, and so um, there were these two statutes uh, that could have been deployed uh, by the federal government to uh, tamp down on local violence, both by state actors, by sheriffs and police chiefs, but also by uh, conspirators like the KKK and others. Uh, the, these laws were not really put into force until uh, the ni- uh, 1940s. Uh, there were a couple of cases before that, but it's not until 1939 uh, that the uh, Justice Department creates a unit uh, intended to address racial violence. And even then, uh, their efforts on this front uh, were ineffectual, uh, in part because um, they were tied to local communities for investigation. So the lawyers in Washington had to look to lawyers uh, in uh, the uh, southern jurisdictions uh, to investigate these cases, to, not just to lawyers, but also to the FBI, the local FBI. And these people were embedded in their communities. They were all white, of course, um, and deeply embedded in their communities and hostile uh, to the prosecution of these cases. So that was one factor. In, a, in, in uh, inadequate laws, 
difficulty uh, working through the southern jurisdictional legal system, uh, federal uh, legal systems uh, in the South. And the other is jurors. So we're we're talking about all white, mostly male jurors during this period of time. And they would uh, repeatedly, uh, with rare exceptions, watch these cases, even when they came, even when the killings were uh, just uh, so obvious, the evidence uh, was hitting you, hitting you in the face. And nevertheless, the jurors would return and slap down these prosecutors time and time again, both federal and a few state prosecutors. And so no prosecutor wants to enter uh, a courtroom with a case uh, that is solid, um, that is going to be rejected, uh, that uh, he knows will be rejected by a jury. So for those are the three central reasons why the federal why federal um, support uh, for the effort to uh, control the violence in the South was unavailing. Let me just add one fourth thing, and that is to say that when the civil rights statutes were adopted in the 1960s, uh, even then uh, there was an effort on the part of John Lewis and others to get the statutes to include remedies for racial violence, uh, and it didn't happen. We got a Voting Rights Act, we got a Housing Act, uh, we got, you know, Public Accommodations Act, uh, and we got an employment, uh, uh, a, a Title VII, the employment bill, but we got nothing uh, from the federal government that would uh, address and redress this violence. And in part, uh, that's obviously what's going because of, you know, the, the strength of the um, Southern constituency in Congress, uh, but it's also because the federal uh, because the parties are not interested um, in uh, in raising the ire of um, uh, Southern politicians. While we're talking about presidential administrations, you report in the book that, in fact, after Harry Truman in, uh, initiated his civil rights agenda, there was, in fact, a steep rise in anti-Black crimes. There was. So Harry Truman comes along in 1948, and he creates a commission uh, to investigate, um, he first of all desegregates the army, uh, famously uh, desegregates the army, and then creates a commission to investigate these cases. Um, and uh, and the commission begins to hold hearings uh, in the South. Uh, you know, one case out of, out of uh, Mobile, Alabama, I think is um, exemplary of what happened. Uh, he, when this man gets on a, on a bus, uh, he's coming from his base. It's 1948. Uh, not, he's coming from a base where he works. It's 1948. He's traveling with a white worker, a fellow worker. Um, and he says something. I asked the guy, uh, can we have a beer? And the guy says, no, I don't drink with, um, I don't drink with black folk. And, uh, and uh, the victim says, uh, well, Harry Truman's going to fix all that. Uh, and he gets off the bus. And the white fellow worker follows him um, and uh, and uh, kills him uh, right there at the bus stop. Uh, so that's an extreme case, obviously. Um, but just all across the country, there's this spike. And we see it in Birmingham as well. We've traced, we're able to trace police killings uh, in Birmingham. And there's this dramatic spike um, in 1948 um, as the federal, uh, uh, as the uh, national uh, government uh, begins um, to, 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 to begin to uh, recognize these issues in the South. The Supreme Court has an important role in the story that you tell, sometimes in reinforcing Jim Crow and sometimes remedying it. Uh, tell me about the importance of the Crookshank ruling that set the stage for Jim Crow violence. So Crookshank is a case coming out of 
uh, Louisiana in the uh, 19th century, midnight, late 19th century, um, and uh, it involved uh, really a slaughter of uh, African Americans who are mobilizing to um, to uh, to participate uh, electorally, uh, slaughtered by uh, by uh, white Democrats. These were black Republicans uh, being slaughtered slaughtered by a, a group of white um, Democrats uh, at the courthouse in Louisiana. And um, the case that emerges is one brought by the federal government against the killers. Uh, Crookshank is the name of one of the killers. Uh, and uh, these people are prosecuted. Uh, some are convicted. Uh, the case reaches the Supreme Court, um, and the and the Supreme Court reverses the uh, the uh, prosecu- the um, the convictions. Uh, and the reasoning given uh, by the Supreme Court uh, is that this is this behavior um, is not protected. Uh, constitutionally protected. So that just opens the door, and it's a message to Southerners across the country uh, that they can proceed without fear of federal intervention. Uh, And as I say, uh, what it means, uh, it sets the stage for an abandonment of this field uh, by the federal government until 1939, uh, when this civil rights unit is launched, um, and uh, Frank Murphy, who would, uh, a uh, Michigander, who would later become a Supreme Court justice, uh, is uh, appointed uh, by FDR to head up uh, civil rights for the federal government. Would you uh, explain the role, particular role, of Justice Joseph B. Bradley in underscoring the Jim Crow era? Yeah, so it was Bradley uh, who wrote the opinion uh, in Cruikshank. Uh, He was, uh, at that point, uh, a uh, lower appellate court judge, uh, but his opinion was accepted when it got to the Supreme Court. Bradley was on the Supreme Court, but at, at, at that point, the judges also served in an appellate capacity uh, right below the Supreme Court. And so it's Bradley's opinion uh, in which he says, uh, look, this is slavery. This is not a 13th Amendment problem. Uh, no one's in chains here. Slavery is over. Uh, so the 13th Amendment provides no protection. The 14th Amendment, which provides for equal protection, uh, is not applicable either. There were no equal protection rights violated, uh, nor is any um, other amendment at that time. Of course, the, the Second Amendment would also have been uh, applicable because the African-Americans were seeking to protect themselves and everybody was armed uh, on both sides of this conflict. Uh, so uh, so it's his opinion uh, which uh, uh, you know pulls the teeth out from the 13th Amendment um, that becomes um, the basis for an understanding of the uh, of the Civil War amendments 13, 14, and 15 um, as quite uh, limited as you know as uh, as uh, as really a, a truncated approach to these amendments. Um, 13 becomes basically useless uh, to secure the freedom, uh, the freedom, the rights, um, the rights of uh, individuals to protect their African Americans to protect their lives and their property. Uh, 13 uh, is uh, after Crookshank inapplicable to that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
You also uh, write about a case in 1945, Screws versus the United States, which defined the terms of federal engagement with racially motivated police cases for the next 40 years. What did it do? So in the Screws, Screws is an interesting case, uh, not just for its holding, but also because the facts were quite dramatic, which is really the only reason it ultimately reaches the Supreme Court. Uh, so uh, just to briefly describe the facts that led to the opinion, uh, Robert Hall is a uh, recently returned um, soldier, a veteran uh, who uh, returns to his community um, in Georgia. Uh, he uh, brings back with him a, a gun, uh, which he had uh, secured uh, from his overseas travels, uh, overseas um, military service, um, and the sheriff of that county, whose name is Screws, Sheriff Screws, um, decided that uh, Negroes uh, could not be armed um, in his county. And so uh, he grabs the gun or has uh, uh, the gun taken from uh, Robert Hall, who then uh, has the temerity to hire a lawyer uh, and uh, get a, an opinion from a uh, grand jury, ordering the sheriff to return the gun uh, the, the sheriff then trumps up a charge against Hall, uh, which gives him uh, the opportunity to go to his home, uh, grab him in the middle of the night. Uh, and the sheriff and his deputies um, then take uh, uh, Hall uh, to the courthouse where the jail is located and the courthouse. Uh, it's the county, obviously the county uh, courthouse. Um, and there on the lawn, in the presence of all the neighbors who are listening and awakened uh, by this event, um, they beat him to get to death uh, with straps and uh, various uh, various instruments. They just uh, beat him and leave him uh, die to die, leave him uh, in a state where ultimately he dies um, from this beating. Now, obviously, the sheriff is prosecuted by federal authorities here, thereby the case um, Screws versus U.S. Um, starts as U.S. versus Screws. Uh, and it ultimately reaches the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court applies one of these two statutes that I mentioned, uh, which uh, is a criminal statute uh, addressing uh, unconstitutional uh, criminal behavior by a public official, by a state actor. Uh, and the Supreme Court says in Screws um, that uh, the sheriff can't be held responsible under this statute because it's not clear from the evidence that he intended to deprive Robert Hall, his victim, of a particular uh, constitutional right. Um, so uh, the, ju- the justices in Screws, um, they hypothes- hypothesized that maybe the sheriff had a beef against Hall. Maybe he just didn't like Hall. Maybe this was a personal matter. We have no way of uh, appreciating this as an effort to deprive Hall of his constitutional rights, and therefore the statute does not apply. The, this, it's a question, uh, as the sheriff says, as the court says, a question of the intent of the of the sheriff here, uh, the criminal defend who is the criminal defendant, and of course, intent is critically important in uh, criminal cases. So the, the, we're talking really about the structure, but it's really the personal cases that animate the story in the stories in your book, By Hands Now Known. You begin with one of Ollie Hunter. Can you tell me Ollie Hunter's story? I start with Ollie Hunter because uh, it uh, says a lot about 
vulnerability uh, of women as well as men. Ollie Hunter was uh, a, um, a woman in her uh, senior years. She was, uh, at that point, it would be considered senior. I don't know about today, but she's in her 60s. And um, the case comes to us by way of a letter that was written to the NAACP uh, describing a killing in the small town of Donaldsonville, Georgia, uh, in uh, the 1940s. And the author of the letter doesn't give the name of the victim because he doesn't know it. But he says she went into a store on the main street and apparently picked up a can which upset the store owner, who is a young, uh, excuse me, the store clerk, who is a young white man in his 20s. And uh, he follows her out of the store and beats her to death with an axe. And the letter writer uh, seeks the support of the NAACP uh, to um, uncover this case and to uh, seek seek justice for for the, the victim. Um, and that's it. That's the only document in the file when we get it. Uh, we are able to lo- to uh, identify who the victim is uh, by matching up the time in the letter and uh, the death certificates from uh, Donaldsonville. Uh, and so that brings us to this woman. Uh, we get her death certificate. Um, it obviously doesn't describe any kind of a violent incident. Uh, but uh, from there, we pieced together uh, who she was. And let me just add that we did find one other, we did ultimately end up with one other um, piece of evidence in the Ollie Hunter case. And it, it's, a, um, it's a commentary on the through line in the book because it was a letter from a relative of Ollie Hunter who was identified by our students and who was in jail in Florida. She's in, incarcerated. Um, this letter comes to us in uh, 2020, 2020. And she writes that, yes, this is her relative, and she'd like to uh, help in any way she could to reconstruct her life. Uh, we weren't able fully to pursue that, uh, but it suggests the ways, and in, in some ways, obviously, there are serious disconnects, but uh, it suggests the connection between the old Jim Crow and the new Jim Crow in some ways. So Ollie Hunter is basically invisibilized. She disappears. Uh, her death is unremarkable uh, in Donaldsonville. Um, she just passes into history. And uh, so I start the story to, just because I think it it uh, reveals uh, how um, these cases emerged from very ordinary everyday encounters between white people and black people, um, and how lost they have been to history. So was anything other than the relative that un- uh, was uncovered, did Donaldsonville recognize Ollie Hunter's death once you told the story? Not as far as we know. So the th- the thing that uh, her case was was one of a, of a store, but so many of the individual cases that you write about happened on public transportation. And I wanted to uh, first start off by having you explain the role of public transportation in daily life of African-Americans in the South during that period of time. As everybody knows, um, the buses were segregated and they were 
the emblem of Jim Crow. Rosa Parks made that true. Uh, so uh, these are public buses. People had to take them to work, to shop, um, to get to see relatives. Um, and uh, the control of the Jim Crow apparatus in the bus was left in the hands of bus drivers. So across the South, uh, we see bus drivers who are armed. Uh, why would a bus driver need a weapon? Uh, because he has to impose the discipline of Jim Crow in the bus. Um, and uh, African-Americans are protesting. They're resisting in a thousand different ways, some well-organized um, and some uh, not so uh, not not organized, some completely spontaneous. Uh, and so um, we have a number of cases in the archive where bus drivers have shot um, and killed passengers uh, or where bus drivers have called on uh, the police uh, who uh, arrived quickly on the scene um, to discipline black, uh, black riders who are uh, resisting. Uh, and maybe even they don't, maybe they're just protecting yeah, maybe they're tired, as was famously Rosa Parks. Um, uh, maybe they don't intend uh, to be have these uh, s- uh, symbols of, of protest. Uh, but for some reason, they're uh, uh, upsetting the apple cart, annoying the bus driver, uh, out of place, uh, and therefore um, subjected to this lethal violence. And we tell a number of these stories, and a number of them focus on soldiers, uh, many of whom are traveling uh, in the South for the first time, these are folks who are coming from areas where other um, other elements of Jim Crow obviously still uh, exist. You know, New York City, you can't get a job. You can't, uh, if you're African-American, you can't get certain jobs, can't live in certain neighborhoods. But these um, these more, uh, more visible uh, and humiliating uh, forms of racism, you know, the color line in the bus, are, are new uh, to the soldiers who are traveling in this, uh, who are now traveling in these cities, and the buses are more crowded. You know, folks are—it's uh, the wartime. People are uh, the, the cities are filling up with people from across the country, uh, and so the hustle and bustle of public transportation is uh, really enhanced. Uh, and the soldiers are coming into contact with Jim Crow uh, in ways that are new to them, and therefore a number of them uh, end up uh, victims of, uh, lethal victims of bus drivers or police. So the soldiers arrived uh, with the mistaken belief that their uniform and their service somehow changed the equation, but that was a deadly miscalculation for many. It was, uh, and oftentimes uh, it was the very uniform itself uh, that was offensive, uh, to either bus drivers or to police officers. We tell one story of a, a man in a small town, Summit, Georgia, uh, who was out in uniform on July 4th with a friend, a female friend, and he's uh, shaken down by a police officer. And he objects and he says, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm sitting here having a drink with my friend, a beer with a friend, and he says to the uh, uh, to the police officer, "I'm not your man anymore. I'm Uncle Sam's man." And uh, the officer con- continues to abuse him. He ends up uh, at the end of an alley, and then uh, is shot to death. Um, the man's name is uh, Willie Davis. His mother um, spends the rest of her years fighting uh, for justice in 
her son's case. Uh, she has two sons. They both go to the service. Um, and uh, this is a, a devastating loss for her. Uh, and obviously, uh, the friend who was with him, uh, to see this violence uh, traumatized is obviously, it's not just the lethality, but also the trauma that people uh, have to live with. Because the violence is perpetrated, you know, in full public view. Got another case out of Durham in which a soldier uh, named Booker Spicely uh, protests uh, being ordered to sit in the back of the bus. The bus, when he gets off the bus, the bus driver follows him off the bus and shoots him uh, right there on the streets of Durham. Everybody on that bus sees that. Um, the white travelers, the black travelers, uh, the other soldiers, the white soldiers who are sitting in the front of the bus uh, while Booker is ordered to sit in the back of the bus. Um, so these are, uh, you know, these are events that um, that have that, that, that spread, um, you know, that, uh, you know, they're like Quidjo. Uh, they just spread all over the place. Uh, yes. I also flagged uh, the story of Private Henry Williams in 1942 in Mobile. Do you remember that story? I do. So uh, Henry is uh, out of Mississippi, uh, enlisted soldier uh, at, um, in, uh, in, in, in Mobile, Alabama, and is traveling uh, back to his base, uh, gets on a bus. The bus driver, also from Mississippi, is talking to a neighboring bus driver or is having a conversation. And um, Williams is late uh, to meet his curfew. And so he says to the bus driver, could you move on so I can meet my curfew? And the bus driver is just um, so uh, 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 insulted uh, and incensed by this uh, that he uh, engages uh, conversation, a heated conversation with Williams, who then grabs his laundry, he's done his laundry in Mobile, um, and uh, chases him off the bus and uh, shoots him to death right there. Now, that incident uh, led to a protest movement in Mobile, Alabama, uh, which ultimately successfully uh, resulted in the disarming of bus drivers, not the desegregation of the buses. That wouldn't come until the 1950s, but certainly the disarming of the bus drivers. When the Supreme Court... It was a threatened boycott in that um, case led by the NAACP that that resulted in the bus drivers being disarmed. When the Supreme Court said segregated buses were no longer uh, uh, viable, did that end the violence? Uh, That I... that, That I can't say, uh, well, to the extent that it was enforced, it would have ended violence related to Jim Crow segregation on the buses. It certainly doesn't end uh, the violence on uh, in these communities. Sure. And by the way, uh, the buses are not desegregated, as we all well know, until the 1960s, really. Um, so the freedom rides are really about desegregating public transportation across the 1950s and into the 1960s. We all remember the story of uh, John Lewis, uh, who was on a freedom ride, arrived at Addison, Alabama, and was beaten within an inch of his life. 
that I believe was 1961. So the white citizens who were were witnesses to these kinds of incidents, there had to be people of good heart who would want to come, who were horrified by it. What prevented them in these communities from coming forward and insisting that some justice be done? Well, in many cases, they, well, I don't know. I, I, I can't say many. I, let me not, uh, let me not um, begin counting here. But we uncover uh, cases in which uh, white citizens uh, fought the system. Uh, so in one case, uh, out of Birmingham, a uh, man who is a chauffeur for a family uh, chauffeur for a doctor and his wife, prominent family, is on his day off. He goes to the barbershop. He gets out of the barbershop after spending time with his buddies in the barbershop in Black Area in uh, in, in uh, Birmingham and is shot down by a police officer on the street. And uh, officer tells a story about he was, about how he was attacked by the victim and the victim was drunk, et cetera, and so on. And the couple for whom he worked, uh, first of all, the doctor uh, did an autopsy uh, establishing uh, that the shooting took place in a way that um, that refuted the uh, self-defense story um, and um, and and established that it was a cold blood shooting. Uh, And so he steps up to the plate and the wife, his wife, also prominent. Birmingham citizen at the time uh, seeks to use her influence with the uh, prosecutors in town uh, to uh, attest to the character of this uh, fellow. The victim said he didn't drink, um, so he couldn't have been drunk, um, you know, and, you know, she knew him well, um, as they say, like one of the family, um, is what people said about their household help. and so they know him well, and they try to get justice, but they are certainly unable uh, in this case uh, to uh, break through um, the line of solidarity, in this case, uh, led by uh, Bull Connor and others in Birmingham. And that's, that's you know, that's not, uh, that happens uh, repeatedly in the, in the archive uh, in ways that obviously are discouraging uh, for whites who might want to be allies um, in during this period. A couple of other uh, aspects of the story. What was the role of the local media? Your students were able to find stories, but how were these kinds of incidents generally covered in the local mainstream press? So by mainstream, I assume you mean the, the uh, white press. So yes, exactly. There are, two press, there are two presses involved here. There's the black press. And the black, black press, uh, the so-called black press, and then there's a so-called white press. So the, the black press are critically important uh, in uh, in our ability to recover these stories. And that would be the Amsterdam News, the, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, uh, the newspaper, there was a newspaper out of Virginia and a newspaper out of North Carolina, uh, and uh, the Atlanta World, the Birmingham World. These are critically, and some are local, some are national. Um, the local, the national, national black press picked up these stories from uh, their local context, and then and then and, and thereby created uh, a, a form of uh, a national community, a national community of resistance. Uh, and so, some of these stories come out of the that the black press. Uh, our students are also able to pick up 
um, the accounting in the white press. And obviously the white press are always uh, uh, assuming that the uh, account given by public officials and either the police or other public officials uh, is the right account. And this is also true today that people get too much of their news about violent incidents that may involve the police from the police themselves uh, without appreciating uh, that the police have a reason to distort um, an, an account, that this is this is not an impartial account of the event. So the a white press are always uh, uh, there's always, in, in, in many cases in Birmingham, for example, there's a knife. Uh, the black man, whoever he may have been, uh, always had, has, always has a knife. Uh, whereas the black press are telling a very, very different story. Uh, you know, we have a lot of stories where people are killed in their homes. Uh, we have a lot of stories where, uh, people are killed, uh, because they have a disability and, and therefore, are not, you know, fully able to respond to perhaps a police inquiry. And so rather than, you know, uh, making further inquiries, they're they're shot to death uh, often uh, over and over. So the disability rights movement will find a great deal uh, of interesting history about the way the double uh, liabilities uh, that African-Americans who also had disabilities uh, faced. Um, So... Uh, so yes, the, the press is critically important for our students, not only in being able to compare the way these stories were told, uh, but also in their ability to recover stories. And oftentimes the stories are recovered in the black press, but not in the white press. Let me just say one other thing about the black press, uh, which is the stories were, car- oftentimes these stories are not carried in the local press at all. And black communities would find out about them because uh, uh, folks who uh, worked on the railroad, the Pullman porters, would travel from a place like Macomb, Mississippi, up to Chicago on the railroad. And they'd lay over in Chicago and they'd bring back the Chicago Defender. And the Chicago Defender might tell them about a killing in South uh, southwest uh, Mississippi that they otherwise wouldn't have heard about. So the press is critical here. You also earlier referenced the NAACP. And during the period that your research covered, the NAACP's size and importance grew. And Thurgood Marshall plays a role in many of the cases that you cite in the book, Future Supreme Court Justice, obviously. Um, How successful was the NAACP during this period in bringing some pressure to to bear in these cases? Uh, Thurgood Marshall, un- unlike a number of other organizations uh, who were also active during this period, and there were a number of left organizations, socialist and communist organizations uh, during the 1930s and 1940s, uh, what the NAACP had uh, that they that these other groups did not was the ear of the Justice Department. If Thurgood Marshall wrote to the Justice Department, he could be assured of a, of a letter back, even if the letter was simply to say we're investigating or we're not investigating. He had uh, the ear of the Justice Department, uh, and before him, uh, it uh, it was uh, Charles uh, Hamilton Houston in the 1930s who was also writing to the Justice Department about these uh, about these crimes. Um, so. Uh, so the, the, the path that the NAACP office in Washington was a letter would come, uh, as I said, so, for example, from Donaldsonville up to Walter White. Walter White, who was the head of the NAA during this period of time, would pass the letter on to uh, Marshall or to Robert Carter, who is a, a later NAA lawyer. Uh, and they would figure out 
uh, how to respond, whether to contact the local branch or whether to contact justice directly or to do both. Uh, what the files reveal, and I think really for the first time, uh, for legal scholars and for others interested in uh, how our government worked and uh, and and the role of uh, organizations, um, advocacy organizations like the NAA, uh, is uh, what was going on in the DOJ in response to Marshall. So Marshall only has his file. Now we have the full DOJ file with the correspondence uh, between uh, uh, lawyers at the DOJ, including uh, lawyers situated in the South and those in the North. So in one case, for example, there's a guy, a uh, prosecutor in the South, his name is Parker, uh, who is resistant to pursuing any cases. He's been burned once. He lost the case uh, badly before a federal jury. He doesn't want to try any others. And the lawyers in Washington keep prodding him to move forward with these cases. And Marshall is prodding those lawyers in Washington uh, to get the cases going. Uh, some of these cases are out of Tuskegee. So uh, Tuskegee, Tuskegee, you have the university there. You have a pretty active African-American community. They're writing to Marshall. Marshall's writing to Washington. Nothing's going. And so what we have in the file is a letter uh, or a, a memorandum from the uh, DOJ Washington lawyer uh, essentially saying Parker will not move on anything. So it's the local lo local DOJ lawyer who refuses to prosecute the cases. So now we can close the circle and fully appreciate uh, why uh, Marshall uh, and the other advocates, lawyers and others, were effective or ineffective in getting federal intervention in these cases. Two cities uh, figure prominently in the, and by these hands now known. One is Birmingham, your hometown. The other is Detroit. Uh, what should we know about the, the roles they played in the story that you tell? So uh, let me start with Detroit. Um, Detroit uh, is a uh, city with a deep history. And uh, I, I start with in Detroit, 1920s. It's a city with a very, very deep history uh, of African-American organizing uh, and African-American liberatory uh, efforts uh, going back to the Underground Railroad. So the Underground Railroad runs through Detroit. Uh, folks stop there. They're, um, uh, they gain uh, succor and, um, and, uh, and support uh, in Detroit, but some of them also move on to other cities. They move on to uh, Canada, for example, um, excuse me, move on to Canada. Um, so Detroit is well positioned uh, to support African-Americans who are running from violence in the South. And so I pick three or four cases uh, where African-Americans are escaping lynch mobs uh, in places like uh, Florida, uh, Louisiana, uh, and Mississippi. Those are my three cases, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi. Uh, and they all end up in Black Bottom, Detroit, starting uh, in the 1920s. Uh, I tell the story of a woman uh, who is being prosecuted. She's a nurse. She's being prosecuted uh, because she's been involved in an incident that resulted in the death of one of her patients who had sought an abortion. Uh, and she and the uh, patient's uh, 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 boyfriend are both prosecuted 
they escaped, they are found not guilty, uh, but then the uh, Pensacola authorities start a new prosecution against her. She realizes she's got to get out of Dodge, and she does, and she ends up in, in Detroit. <laughs> and uh, so I tell her story, and then I also tell the story of a man who, uh, in the 1930s, uh, was uh, had to run from, uh, ran from, let me put it that way, uh, from Mississippi, I'm sorry, from Louisiana, uh, ends up in Detroit, uh, and uh, it's claimed that he shot and killed a police officer uh, in Louisiana, in uh, New Orleans, in the early 1930s. Ten years later, uh, he, his, ex, his um, extradition from Detroit is sought uh, by the authorities. That's successful. Two police officers from New Orleans come back. They take him back uh, to New Orleans. And on the day of his arrival in New Orleans, those police officers shoot and kill him. So I tell these stories um, to, first of all, to describe the kind of lawyering that went on during this period, the kind of legal advocacy, mostly led by African-American lawyers in Detroit, um, the you know sophistication of their advocacy uh, and the nature of the support uh, that was provided by the local Detroit community uh, and the ways in which um, these stories of escape uh, and uh, of escape from danger and from lynching began to knit together a national African-American community where those who had migrated uh, or, or who had lived from generation, for many generations in Detroit uh, found that there was something uh, they could do uh, to contribute uh, to uh, the protests and resistance uh, in uh, the places from which they had come. You suggest that uh, Detroit received 100,000 migrants during the Great Migration, many of them escaping the violence in the South. We only have about 10 minutes left. Our hour is really rapidly deteriorating here. And I mentioned Birmingham. And let me just keep it to one question, because I want to move on to the final section of your book. And that is, Birmingham is your hometown. Your family, your parents were involved in the civil rights movement in the 1940s. Is this your story as well? Well, it's my parents' story. I was a, a young child in Birmingham, and they uh, left Birmingham and, I, and, and moved to New York City, where, where I was really raised. I was born in a segregated hospital in Birmingham, but ultimately grew up in uh, in New York. Uh, and I tell the stor- stories about Birmingham because Birmingham is such a unique place. We know the Birmingham of the 1960s, but we don't really know. That's been well told by... Uh, you know, a number of uh, number of authors uh, carrying me home uh, by Diane McWhorter and uh, and others have told the Birmingham story, uh, but we don't know this earlier story as well. Notwithstanding the work of Robin Kelly and others um, to uh, inform us, and so I seek to tell uh, the story of uh, you know of, of the, the violence of the police and and the uh, deep seat of resistance provided by Birmingham communities. You you titled your project the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Program. And the last part of your book is about redress. You argue that restorative justice is necessary. You write, recognizing these victims and restoring justice for their families today is both possible and necessary. What does that look like? So I, I leave it to the families to say what it what it looks like. Uh, what I what but what I will say. Uh, is that we're in uh, the moment of repair, 
reparations redress. It's not just an American moment, it's an, it's an international moment. This is going on all over the world. Communities are looking back uh, to appreciate the devastation of past wrongs, such as colonialism, in our case, slavery and Jim Crow. And, uh, and so uh, I, I argue that this particular set of uh, victims, and, and I use the word victim um, intentionally here. Some would use the word survivors, victim survivors. Uh, they are known. We know who these families are. This is not ancient history, not to say that slavery is ancient history, but this is our era. Um, you know, we talk about the great generation from World uh, War II. We honor their service. We appreciate uh, uh, all that they did. Um, so this is close to, uh, to, to our time. Uh, and so and it's com- and it's measurable. We, under, we can appreciate what these families lost, or we have the tools to measure what it is they lost, and we know who they are. And so all of the factors that would make it perhaps more difficult um, to institute and carry out a project of repair uh, for an earlier period are absent here. Uh, and, uh, and so I say, this is a critical uh, place to start our work of repair as a nation. And we've done it before with respect to World War, t- World War II. The Civil Liberties Act signed by President Clinton, which recognized the horror- horrors visited on the Japanese and Japanese American communities during World War II uh, was an example of the kind of recognition um, that could, uh, that should be enacted here. We have about five, six minutes left. Uh, You have also been confirmed by the Senate as part of the five-member federal Civil Rights Cold Case Review Board. What is the work that the review board does? The review board is, first of all, the review board is not limited to uh, the African-American story. It's about um, civil rights cold cases uh, that uh, cross uh, racial lines uh, where uh, the civil rights of individuals uh, were found, found to be uh, violated, and where um, and where these cases uh, have been uh, remain um, in the files of the Justice Department and the FBI and in other files. Our job is to open up those files uh, to the general public. Uh, there obviously are criteria that will guide our work. Uh, we're not trying to. Um, make available to the public files that discuss uh, sensitive matters of you know that affect foreign affairs uh, or living uh, living individuals. Uh, but we but within the guidelines set forth in the statute, our job is to uh, render these files publicly available as uh, expeditiously as we can, uh, so that these stories uh, can be absorbed uh, by the American public. And, uh, and a greater justice uh, found wherever it may be found and however it may be uh, accomplished. A couple of closing questions. You spent your life's work immersed in the intersection of civil rights and the law. How do you feel about the state of things today? Um, obviously, much work to be done. Uh, I, I, but you know, I'm, not, I'm neither an optimist or a pessimist. I try to, as a scholar, I just try to be a, a, a realist um, to describe where we are as a country. Uh, obviously deeply disturbed by 
the effort to close down libraries and 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 in effect burn books uh, and and uh, criminalize um, certain forms of teaching. Uh, you know, when I was a young civil rights worker, we created this, the freedom schools uh, because we knew our kids were being miseducated. Uh, and you know, maybe it's a freedom school moment. It shouldn't have to be. Our public schools should be. Uh, uh, should be able to uh, to look at all of these issues, issues pertaining to Af- the African American f- ongoing African American freedom struggle, in its uh, reformist as well as in its radical uh, radical dimensions, as well as um, the LGBT struggles, uh, as struggles around uh, continuing struggles around the uh, freedom of freedom and liberation of women in all of its aspects. And uh, and the ability and the ability of, of folks in the disability community uh, to to make their case um, and to experience um, all of the rights uh, and privileges um, that we would uh, hope and expect uh, are uh, to be available in a country like ours, which are it's not currently the, the case, but it's something that we all need uh, to strive for and understand the intersectionality of our struggles. What uh, has the immersion in this work done for your reflections on human nature? Um, our, you know, uh, uh, we're on the earth to to control these horrific appetites uh, to demonize the other. That's why we're here. We're we're here uh, to, to to appreciate um, that those uh, dehumanizing. Um, invisibilizing um, and violent uh, behavior uh, will surface, uh, will will surface, and our job is to knock it down, knock it back, knock it down and control it. That's why we have government. That's why we have a justice system. Um, that's why we have community. That's why we, well, that's why we care about each other. That's why we have religious communities. That's what this is all about. Uh, and that will be on. That work is ongoing, and uh, we want to get out of the dark spaces and find some light uh, for all of us. And in our last minute, explain the title "By Hands Now Known." Back in the days that I talk about, coroners uh, and others would often describe these uh, incidents of violent murder uh, with the term "by hands unknown." Uh, even lynchings, where thousands of people would gather in community uh, to witness these events, uh, they would ultimately be described as having been committed by hands unknown. Everybody knew who did it. Everybody knew who lit the match, fired the gun, strung up the individual, and yet the hands were unknown. And I argue here that in we in more than one, more in more ways than one we understand now who those hands were and they weren't just the people who lit the match but they were also the judges the lawyers the coroners the pathologists all of whom at one point or another took an oath to serve justice and many of them ended up doing exactly the opposite Legal scholar Margaret Burnham on book tour for the book, By Hands Now Known. Thanks for joining us as you're on tour in Mississippi and for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you so much for having me. Greatly appreciate it and enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. 
And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 